0: Uh, I'd like you to imagine that you are you, only it's 2,000 years ago. I'll pause just long enough to say none of this was my idea. (laughs) You are you, but it's 2,000 years ago, you're in the Middle East Uh, during the Roman Empire. Caesar is in charge. He demands that you refer to him as Lord. The tax burden is crushing, but the empire is stable, there's quite a bit of peace, you've got a good education, and a good job life works. Imagine also that though you are a Gentile, you have found yourself attracted to the teaching to the ethic, to the morality, to the monotheism of the Jews. You are not ready to sign up. You're not ready to take on the ceremonial regulations, the diet restrictions, all the things handed down from Moses. But you're intrigued and you have just heard a man by the name of Paul talk about a man by the name of Jesus. And Paul claims that Jesus is God and that he not only defeated evil, but that he conquered death. And Paul says that you can be a fellow heir of the promises of God, that you can be adopted into the family of God, forgiven of your sin and granted eternal life without acting like a Jew. You don't quite know what to do about all of this. You've been hearing about Jesus, and it's quite clear That the number of people who are following Jesus is growing, but not everybody is. The Greeks believe that the idea that God became a man is an absolute non-starter. It's ridiculous and silly. And not that many Jews are signing up because one of the first things that everyone expected the Jewish Messiah to do was to defeat the Romans and restore the Jews to power, and Jesus didn't do that. And just to, to make things even more complicated, Jesus was crucified. He hung on a cross. And that means that he was cursed by God. And there are some people who claim that Paul is wrong. They say that if you want to be a Christ follower, you are going to have to act the part of a Jew. You cannot be an heir of the promises made to Abraham unless you become a Jew in addition to becoming a Christian. And Paul has made it clear that not everybody that claims to be a Christian actually is one. So how do you make sense of this? How do you you figure out who's telling the truth? Who do you listen to? Who can you trust? Well, I have good news for you. The Gospel of Luke was written for just that reason. As most of you know, we have been given four Gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four accounts of the life of Jesus. Four biographies, if you're willing to push that word. They're not classic biographies. They don't tell us a whole lot about Jesus' life before the age of 30. And they really focus in on the last week. But they were written to tell us about Jesus and to persuade us that he was God and we should follow him. There's a lot of overlap between Uh, the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but they are each written from their own vantage point. They each tell the story in their own way. Matthew was written for the Jews, Mark was written for the Romans, Luke was written for Gentiles, and John was written for the Greeks, and Luke, which we are about to begin studying, Luke, which is the longest of the, uh, of the four Gospels, which is Luke, which is sometimes referred to as the third Gospel, Luke was written for Gentiles. And so Luke pays particular attention to the issues surrounding Gentiles. He pays particular attention to issues around the poor and around women and around the Holy Spirit. And Luke pays particular attention to the words and teaching of Christ. There are 568 verses, roughly half of the 1,151 verses in the Gospel of Luke, 568 are red letter verses. They are the words of Jesus himself. And it is a remarkable, wonderful, life changing, powerful book, and I am excited uh, that we are going to begin studying it today. So I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to look at the first four verses this morning. Luke chapter 1, I will begin uh, reading this with commentary. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. One of the first things you should understand is that uh, though Luke is not doing what Matthew does, Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy because Matthew wants to make it very clear to the Jews to whom he is writing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, of the Hebrew scriptures. And so he goes to a genealogy which ties Jesus back to all the Old Testament figures. Luke does not do that. But he does make a bit of a link. Luke 1 does not say, Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have happened among us. He says, Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. He is linking this back to the promises we find in the Old Testament about a Messiah, about the one God would send to rescue us. If you start learning about Jesus in the New Testament, you will meet an indescribable person. You will meet someone who does does and who says things that will cause your jaw to drop. You will meet someone who is wise and wonderful in ways that no one else could be wise and wonderful. You will have your breath taken away by Jesus. But you will not get the full picture. You are coming into the movie with 15 minutes left to go. The first hour and 45 minutes has already played. And those hour and 45 minutes help you understand what's happening in the last 15 minutes. You can still learn a lot in the last 15 minutes, but Luke opens by making certain that we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the things that have happened before we start reading the Gospels. Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. And the word for word here is the word logos, which is a reference to Christ. So we're looking at those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word jesus therefore since i myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you most excellent theophilus in the first century people were not as uh, concerned about chronological time as we are today they were a little bit more interested in what we call kairos time which was the significant moments the, the the powerful moments. They didn't pay as much attention to chronology as we might. And John's Gospel, for instance, is written thematically. So John makes no effort to put it in a chronological order. Luke writes to put it in order. And he is making that point. There are other accounts of Jesus. Other people have already written. We, we take this to be Matthew and Mark. John is written later. Other people have written, but, but I thought that it would be prudent to go to the eyewitnesses and servants of Jesus and to give you, after I carefully investigated everything from the beginning, to give to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Two key people uh, to meet here in in these first four verses. The first is Luke. Uh, Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke, thus the name. He doesn't start by identifying himself. Some, you might expect that Luke would say, I, Luke, a follower of Jesus Christ, travel companion of the Apostle Paul, am writing to you. Uh, He doesn't say that, as a matter of fact, He never identifies himself in the Gospel of Luke. We know that Luke wrote Luke because Luke and Acts come together as sort of a two-volume set. We've got the biography of Jesus and we've got the biography of the early church. And they clearly go together and we know that Luke wrote Acts. So consequently we know that Luke wrote Luke. We know also that he is a Gentile. which means that he's not a Jew. There are Jews, and there's everybody else. Everybody else is referred to as a Gentile. Luke is the only Gentile to write any part of the Bible. We also know that Luke is a very bright man. We know this in part because of the quality of the Greek that we read. When you're a student... Uh, at seminary and you have a Greek exam coming up, you hope that the professor does not decide to ask you to translate something out of the book of Hebrews or out of the book of Luke or Acts because the Greek is just that much more complicated. And it's it's just written at a higher level. Luke was uh, a bright guy. He's a medical doctor and he is a physician. And he is also a good friend. Luke is the guy who will stay with Paul all the way to the very end. Paul will write, everybody has deserted me. The only one who's staying here is my friend Luke. And uh, we find in a a second century commentary on the Gospel of Luke, um, we find this description of him. Uh, A native of Antioch. By profession, a physician. He had become a disciple of the Apostle Paul and later followed Paul until Paul's martyrdom. Having served the the Lord continuously, unmarried and without children, filled with the Holy Spirit, he died at the age of 84. You know, it would be nice to have people say uh, similar things uh, about us, in particular, he served the Lord continuously, and died filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, with this uh, this little description mentions that that Luke was single. Uh, this sort of sort of fulfills Paul's uh, comments about people who are single uh, having more opportunities to serve uh, the Lord than those who are married. So Paul is gonna is gonna spend or luke is going to spend his time traveling all over hither and yon uh, living a very challenging life with the apostle paul and i mean you can imagine that uh, that had he chosen to settle down he he likely could have done so you can almost imagine the um, the lines he might have used in meeting uh, women you know heard of the bible Um, yeah i wrote part of that Uh, did i mention i was a doctor um So Luke has got a number of things going for him. He writes to Theophilus, or most excellent Theophilus as he's identified here. And there are a number of theories about uh, Theophilus as to who he is. The word Theophilus, the name Theophilus is a combination of theos, which means God, theology is the study of God, and A combination of phileo, which is brotherly love. Uh, Philadelphia is the same root. It's the city of brotherly love. When you put these two words together, you get the idea that Theophilus is a friend of God or a lover of God. And so some have suggested that Theophilus is a symbol for all Christ followers. Um, I don't think that's the case because he is identified as most excellent Theophilus. And most excellent is, an, is the honorific title that is given uh, to government officials, the Honorable Theophilus. So we think, of, we think it's very likely that he is some sort of, of um, civil magistrate. He's a powerful, uh, wealthy individual. Some believe that he is a sympathetic pagan and that Luke is writing to persuade him to follow Christ. I think for reasons that will become clear later in our study that he is, in fact, a Christ follower. And and even beyond that, I think that Theophilus is the one who underwrote the study that Luke did to write the Gospel of Luke. The the, the wording here fits the format of somebody writing to their benefactor and, and thanking them and giving them the report. I think Theophilus is a guy who um, has got a lot to lose if this story isn't true. And so uh, before he updates his Facebook status and says that he is a follower of Christ, he wants somebody to, to do a little bit more work on this. He wants somebody to actually go talk to the eyewitnesses and say, so you were there and you saw him walk on water. No sandbar, you saw him walk on water. You were there, and you saw him multiply this little boy's happy meal and feed 5,000 people. You saw that. You were there and saw him yell at nature, and it obeyed. He's looking for somebody who will go talk to Mary and say, okay, let's... Let's review this. You're like 14 years old and you're minding your own business and an angel appears to you and says that you are going to give birth to a son and you are a virgin and you remain a virgin and you conceive and give birth to Jesus. He wants somebody that's going to go talk to to James and Jude, Christ's brothers and say, "So Jesus was your older brother." And he was perfect how did that work i'm thinking not so well right he theophilus is looking for someone who is going to go do some of the work that he doesn't have the time or ability to do and luke is the perfect person to do it his relationship with paul meant that he knows all the players the fact that he is a, a medical doctor means that he's not going to quickly be inclined to believe claims of a virgin birth or claims of healing. And, and the fact that he is a, a, a bright historian, it just means Luke is the perfect guy. And so in the providence of God, these two, these two men get together. And Luke is doing the work, it's probably a year, year and a half, traveling around, pulling things together in in order to to write this out. And Theophilus is writing the checks to keep Luke going. And and we and billions of other people are the beneficiaries of, of the work that Luke and the funding that Theophilus provided coming together. And we get this unique gospel, an orderly account of the life and and work of Jesus Christ. Now, there are two um, big things that I want to be sure you understand as we begin our study of this gospel. The first is, the claim here is that it is a true story. And the emphasis at this moment is on the word true. Luke is, is writing to set out a, a, a thoughtful, carefully researched account. And he wants it to be one that can be trusted. And you may have already decided as a follower of Christ that you uh, trust the Bible. But you believe that it's inspired, that it's a divine work, work of God and man together, and that, that you can put your confidence in it. So you don't, you don't need this, but many people do need to know where this comes from. Can I trust it? Right? And so then and now, 1st century and 21st century, people make claims you want to know. Well, where did you get your information? So Luke is is doing an investigation, talking to eyewitnesses to pull this together. And there are a number of of reasons why this gospel just resonates as being true. First of all, I'll point out how it doesn't begin. It doesn't begin a long time ago in a faraway land. There lived a young boy. As you read through the gospel of Luke, you are going to see that Luke is mentioning the names of towns and villages, he's mentioning the names of people, he's mentioning the names of government leaders, the year that this happened during their reign. This is written as history. It, it reads as if it is a report from eyewitnesses of things that happened put together in an orderly manner. Uh, The second reason that, uh, that we can trust this is because we know that it was written quite soon after the events that are being described. We believe that the Gospel of Luke was written in the early 60s. And we date it because we know that Luke was written before Acts was written. And we know that Acts was completed before the fall of Jerusalem. So we can just back up and say, it is likely that, that Luke had to be written in the early 60s. Which places it about 30 years after the events being described. Historically, right, you just don't, you don't get this. You don't get ancient documents that were written this closely after the events. But just by way of reference, King Arthur, if he lived, lived in the 5th or 6th centuries, the first writing. The first time anybody writes about King Arthur is 400 years later, right? We have things that are happening 30 years later. And just to bring this into the present, right? So we're talking about things that happened in the 80s. If If it were today, right, we're talking about people writing about things that happened in the 80s. About six weeks ago, our youngest son comes down for breakfast one morning dressed in the most uh, hideous and offensive manner I have seen, and we go, what gives? He goes, Spirit Week at the high school, this is 80s day, (laughs) and I said, I went to college in the 80s, I never saw anyone dressed like you. I never dressed like you're dressed, and I would have walked as far away from someone dressed like you as I could have. That's not the 80s. I was alive during the 80s. Right? You just, there's not enough time for people to make things up. We have an account that was written close 30 years after the events that it is describing. Additionally, we have um, we have this unique uh, record that reports things that you would not expect it to report unless they actually happened. Okay. So some people, are, some people are inclined not to trust the gospel writers because they say they believe. Right? And they're, they're writing to persuade us to believe. These are not objective reporters giving us an account. Fair enough. You're right. They tell us they are writing to believe. But remember, the writers of the Gospels die for their stories. They go to their death. They are martyred because they say, it's true and I am not backing down. And I am willing to lose my life before I will deny what I have written. That's as as strong of an endorsement as anybody can give to something they've done. Because that's the case, because they believe that Jesus is who he is, because they want this story to get out, they give it to us as it happened. And in some cases, this is shocking. They they report things that they would never have made up if they were making this up. For instance, if you're gonna if you're gonna make this up, right, why do you have Jesus born to a single woman? This is a scandal. This is, this is not what you would do. Additionally, why have the, the birth highlighted by shepherds? These are the, this is the lowest rung of the social order. These are the dregs of society. You would want someone people would be more inclined to trust than shepherds. Why would you include a report of Jesus just before he's going to do the pivotal work that he's been called to do, saying, can I get out of this? Why would you report, all four Gospels report that that as he's hanging on the cross, that he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would you have the witnesses to the resurrection be women, when in the first century, women could not testify in court? You wouldn't make it up this way. These things are here because it's the way it actually happened. And then additionally, We just have remarkable extra-biblical confirmation of the things that Luke has given us. It wasn't always the case. For, you know, 30, 40 years ago, there were a lot of people saying, Luke got it wrong, he's got the dating wrong, he's got the people wrong. And now, no, everybody comes around and says, no, actually, it looks like Luke was right. Uh, The late uh, William Ramsey, a distinguished archaeology professor at Oxford University, Nine honorary doctorates uh, from the leading schools around the world wrote, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he should be placed among the very greatest historians. Another man, E.M. Blakelock, professor of classics, uh, writes and says, "Uh, for accuracy of detail and for evocation of atmosphere, Luke stands in fact with Thucydides. Thucydides was a Greek historian wrote about the battle uh, between the, um, the Spartans and the Athenians. Um, he says, the acts of the apostles is not the shoddy product of pious imagining, but a trustworthy record. So we have uh, extra-biblical uh, confirmation. Please hear this. Not all secular historians are impressed with the writings of Luke because... Luke reports miracles. And so if you don't believe that miracles happen, then you are going to discredit this work. But those that, look at the, the, those that look at the things that can be confirmed say, wow, yes, we have a first flight historian giving us this record. So the first thing I want to say is that Luke did his homework uh, and he gives us a true account. He, he interviews the eyewitnesses. He goes to these people and he pulls together an orderly account that people can trust. He was not interested in rumors or, or hearsay. He wanted facts, and that's what he reports. Which means this. We're reading something that is being given to us as true. It's a true story. And I want to emphasize this because... Um, We believe it because it's true, not because it works, not because it gives us hope, not because it makes us feel good, right? It works because it's true. It's not true because it works. It's true because it's true. The claim here is this is what happened. It's a true story. Secondly, it's a true story. What we have in the Gospel of Luke is not a compendium of Christ's teaching. We don't have a collection of, of the things that he said, of the advice that he gave. That's in here. But that's not primarily what we have. What we have primarily is a Story is a narrative of Christ's life. And this is important because the message of this book is not that we are saved by the advice that Luke that Jesus gives us. We are saved by what Jesus does. It's his actions that matter more even than his words. And this is different. Right, if, if, you, if, you look at, if you look at the great religious leaders of any other tradition, you find out that it's not what they did, it's what they said. What people are after is the advice, it's the insights that they had. Because the expectation is, I need to take that advice, and I need to apply it, because I am responsible for my own self. I will be reconciled with God on the basis of what I do, so I need counsel about how to do it. That's not what we get with Jesus. We get something altogether different. Many people have not actually paid that close of attention to what it is that Jesus actually says. If you have not studied the teaching of Jesus, you might be disappointed by what you hear. It's not necessarily uh, invigorating it's not, always, it's not always inspirational or motivational. Sometimes it's shocking, and it's devastating, and it's horrific. Right? Uh, Virginia Stem Owens, um, an author and a professor, was listening to her students talk, and she realized that they all referenced the Sermon on the Mount, but the way they did it, it was clear to her that they hadn't read it. And so she assigned it. as a a project, to read it and to write a paper on the Sermon on the Mount. And when she pulled this together, she was shocked to read how shocked they were. Here's some of the, the things that they said. I don't like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I needed to be perfect. No one is. Another student said, the things this sermon asks for are stupid and unrealistic. Another student said, Jesus not only requires people to give their money away, but to do it joyfully. How's that ever going to (laughs) work? Another one, Jesus said not to worry. He commanded us to be grateful and content with whatever situation we have. This is unrealistic. Lots of people do not understand what it is that Jesus said. They're expecting something inspirational. What what does Jesus' life inspire you to do? Have your children in a barn? Uh, Be a shepherd? No, it's it's very different than what people are often expecting. Many people expect something different because they think they're going to get advice from Jesus that will complete them. But part of what we get is an understanding that we cannot do it on our own. The standard is simply too high. We don't need a teacher as much as we need a savior. We don't need simply someone to enlighten us. We need someone to rescue us. We don't need someone to tell us what to do. We need someone to do it for us. If it's inspiration you're after, the gospel of Luke is not necessarily going to be giving it to you. But Luke claims that it's true and it changes everything. Because it means God showed up to rescue us. And that's powerful, life-changing news. I want to challenge you this week to read the Gospel of Luke. It will take you a couple hours to get through it. Two hours of not watching TV. Two hours of not reading Something else, whatever it is, will not be as profitable as reading the Gospel of Luke. Pay attention to the detail. Pay attention to the chronology. Pay attention to the historical uh, reference points that he gives us. And secondly, I want to challenge you to invite friends as we come back. We, this, is, this is life-changing stuff. The Gospels were written to persuade people to put their faith in Jesus Christ. This is just a great opportunity to invite people to actually understand the life, the work, the teaching, and the claims of the most significant person who ever lived, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord God Almighty, we ask that uh, you would look down with favor upon our time in this book. That we would... uh, We would learn from Jesus, from his teaching, from his claims, from his life, and that we would would be changed because of it. Our understanding of, of who he is and what he's done would change. Our lives would change because of this. We pray to that end, in Christ's name.